Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame starting May 7th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hi everyone it's sophia and welcome back to work in progress Today's guest is a leader at the intersection of culture and justice. She is an award-winning educator, organizer, activist, writer, news contributor, and a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. She is Brittany Packnett Cunningham, and I am over the moon excited to have her with us on the show today. You might know Brittany from her own news and justice podcast, Undistracted which I always listen to for her keen, whip-smart insight into politics and what's going on in current events. Or maybe you've heard her as a co-host of the political podcast, Pod Save the People, which she worked on for three years. Brittany is also an NBC News and MSNBC contributor. She's graced magazine covers like the September 2020 cover of British Vogue and the April 2017 cover of Essence Magazine. And she was named one of Time Magazine's 12 New Faces of Black Leadership. She was honored at the 2018 BET Awards as one of the fiercest activists of our time. And President Barack Obama cited her as a leader whose voice is going to be making a difference for years to come. I'm so very honored today to sit down with such a respected and sought after voice in the arenas of social justice and empowerment and to have had the opportunity to ask her about the motivations behind her social justice work, what it's like to organize protests, call for societal change at the policy level, and also in our interpersonal relationships. To 
ask her about the work that she does out there in the world and also on herself at home. She joined me today to talk about politics and movements, but also about her personal relationship to faith and how much the lessons she learned growing up a minister's daughter taught her about character and how character relates to activism today. As always, it comes back to the central tenet of love, and that is at the root of all the incredible ways she's used her voice to lift the voices of others. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Brittany Pagnett Cunningham. All right, we're on and popping, as as we used to say when we were young folks. <laughs> <laughs> I am no longer one of the the youths. This much is clear to me. And I feel like I look like an adult now. Yeah. For so long, you know, we'd go to things and mm-hmm. you know watch presidents <laughs> speak and be in suits. But I was like, we're just we're masquerading. Yes. Yes. And now we are pretending we, to be adults. Yeah. And now we show up in those spaces in our suits, and I'm like, oh no, we look like we run shit. This is different. When I was a fellow at Harvard, gosh, back in like 2018. So this is, I still thought I was a youth then. But some of the students came in and they were like, would you like me to call you Miss Packnet? And I was like, absolutely not. No. <laughs> and when that started happening so frequently, I was like, oh, okay. This is, it's official. I, um, I'm old enough to be Miss Somebody mm-hmm. and not be teaching third graders like I used to be. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was a that was the shift for me. That was the moment, the mirror moment where I said, okay, it's happening. Don't fight it. Accept the wisdom. Mm-hmm. Enjoy your 30s are fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's like you got enough money to do a little something, but not too much money to do something stupid. You got <laughs> you got enough wisdom to stop being stupid, but you still got, you know. Mm-hmm joie de vivre. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> yeah. We've still got energy to be out here, but we do it smarter, which feels good to me, especially because I I've, I consider us to be in that very blessed age range where mm. most of our worst mistakes didn't happen on someone's Instagram story. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> thank God. Because I could not imagine what it would have been like for me to be even remotely visible, even like just to like my parents or my loved ones or like people I went to school with or whatever, Mm -hmm. when I was just out here being stupid. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I still make plenty of mistakes, but when I was just abjectly idiotic (laughs) because I was so young, thank God there was, I mean, I had to, my first camera phone, you had to carry the phone in a, the the camera in a separate case and attach it to the phone. So thank God there was no ready kind of... (laughs) Video evidence nope. of, you know, youthfulness is really all it was. But. Yeah, I don't know how the kids today do it. I am curious because, you know, we, we joke about this sort of stage we're in. <laughs> you know, this this moment, this being in our, you know, mid-30s. And, and really the way I think about it is stepping into power. Yeah, um, We'll talk about your TED Talk, which is so much about stepping into confidence and I think it takes a long time, especially as women in the world that treats us the way it treats us to, mm-hmm. to step into confidence. But I am curious about, you know, maybe not like 
right when we all got IDs and got excited, we could get into bars, you know, <laughs> youth. But um, I'm curious about young Brittany mm-hmm. because, you know, we've known each other for a long time and we for have. a long time, I have just been so uh, in awe of you and adored you and, and, and felt honored to witness your your brilliance and your leadership and and, and your and your fury and your fight and the way that you love because that's the root of all of it. Thank and you. I'm really curious. Like I just I wish little Sophia and little Brittany had been able to hang. <laughs> oh, we would have been a mess in all the best ways. Oh together. yeah, but I'm like, who who were you at eight? Were you were you always at the front of the line with the idea and the thing to say? Like, or did that evolve? Who who were you as a little girl? That is a good question. In so many ways, I was constantly at the front of the line. And it wasn't necessarily always invited. (laughs) I was just raised that way. Mm. So I am a daddy's girl through and through. And my dad was, he was a pastor and he was an an activist and uh, a college professor. He was a, a liberation theologian. So there are lots of ways that philosophically and spiritually he and my mom raised both myself and my brother Barrington to be really devoted to community mm-hmm. and really devoted to the activity of our faith through community and service, right? That, mm-hmm. that those things were all part and parcel with one another and that devoting yourself to the things that are bigger than you is always the right call. And also... My dad was like the guy who would be at the front of the line. And if you didn't want him at the front of the line, he'd find his way up to the front of the line anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I went and got in a, I went down a total rabbit hole of my dad's press clippings. And, you know, I remember the St. Louis Post-Dispatch writing about when he passed, because I was 12 years old when he passed. Mm. I remember kind of all of these memories coming out of the woodworks for people But when I really started to dig even more, I found stuff I had never seen before. I found reporting on one of the first protests that I remember engaging in him with to get Black Santas in the malls in St. Louis. And there is this picture of our family of four looking at like a plastic Santa somewhere. And this was the picture that was on the front of that section of the paper that day. I read about all of this interfaith work that he had done that I grew up witnessing, but not realizing it was kind of as big a deal regionally as it was. Mm. And so these conversations and conferences that he and rabbis would pull together to figure out what the faith answer was to social stratification and injustice. Um, I found those clippings. I found stuff all the way back to Hartford, Connecticut, where... Uh, I was born in Connecticut. He had graduated from Yale Divinity School, was pastoring a small church out there when he married my mom. And he was involved in pushing some of the state and local agencies to actually make a real commitment to affirmative action. And this is like Mm -hmm. in the early to mid 80s. So like that's who raised me. And I'm reading all of this and I'm like, oh, everything makes so much more sense now, right? Because these are questions I can't ask him because he's not here. Mm. But he left all of these breadcrumbs for me. And, you know, I got to discover them at 36 at 2 in the morning when I should have been asleep. And so, yeah, I was somebody who learned to not be afraid of the sound of my own voice, even if it scared Mm. other people. Mm. I was somebody who 
I think naturally had a lot of compassion, but was also raised to have compassion. Like I, I would cry about <laughs> bad news and sad things in the news. And I, you know, if I saw somebody who was housing insecure, like I'd start crying. Like I was that kid. It was, a, mm-hmm. it was a little much sometimes. And I also think that I was, I had a lot of joy. Like I just had such a blessed and loving childhood. And I, think it, especially when I look at old pictures of myself and watch old home movies, um, you that joy and the, the presence of that joy in my life is clear because I just, I'm radiating it, right? Like I'm happy and singing and laughing and dancing mm-hmm. and doing all of those kind of um, imaginative things that kids do before somebody tells them to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I it does it does give me like a little giggle to know that, you know, our like little B and little S, it's funny. That's what my best friend always says. She'll, she'll ask me something and go, well, how, how would little S feel about that? (laughs) She's like nicknamed all of our littles, um, to make sure you check in, you know, with Mm -hmm. with your internal selves. But I, I think it, it gives that, that little girl who's still alive in me such pleasure to know that when I was coming home sobbing because I learned the Amazon rainforest was in danger, that I could have called you. We could have we could have called on the landline mm-hmm. with the cord. Oh, my the God. Long the long cord, cord from the kitchen to the stairwell. That and, yes. crescent plastic phone that yes. was like mauve or avocado <laughs> yes, or cream. It was never an appeasing color. No. It was always like a slightly turned color of food, but what I would yeah. give to have an avocado phone now Truly. would be so retro. Ours was um, like a pale banana yellow. Ugh. So you could have called me up, but we could have we could have cried together. Walked around the kitchen, <laughs> dragging the cord everywhere. My yes. mom used to be like, "You're gonna stretch the cord." It's <laughs> always a thing. I find it not at all surprising the way you know you talk about the energy of service in your family. And the way that you talk about the faith tradition you grew up in and also how inclusive it was mm. of others. I grew up in a blended family of, of multiple faiths and it, it mm-hmm. made me more curious about other people and, exactly. and how they live. And I wonder, how do you think you, and this skips ahead a bit from childhood, but how do you think you reconcile the way especially that we see now, faith being so weaponized mm-hmm. for harm. Mm-hmm. I, I I balk at the news very often with, you know, quote, religious leaders who are <laughs> using faith as a, as a battering ram or, or mm-hmm. really bastardizing faith to do mm-hmm. so and to harm communities and to sow division. And, and I think about how it happens now and it's, you know, early 2021, and you talk about your dad in the 80s gathering with other faith leaders, your your father standing at the front of protests, talking about the validity and and necessity of and for representation for communities, Mm -hmm. um, be it in policy or in holiday displays. Mm -hmm. It all matters, you know, to us and for us. And I just wonder... As a person of faith yourself, how do you make sure that the spaces that you know you show up in and you worship in are are leaning into the the honesty of it, the the light yeah. of it? Yeah. What do you I, say for the people who are not? You know, you grow up in an institution like the Black Church, because we both recognize the Black Church as 
a place of faithfulness, but also a place of fortitude that Mm -hmm. institutionally birth leaders, housed movements, protected organizers. Uh, When you grow up in that institution, it is easy to think of the function of faith purely socially. Mm. But the other thing that happens when you grow up in this tradition is that you sit with a lot of your elders. There is a time in the Baptist church that I grew up in where you would, before service would actually begin, there was a time of devotion. So devotional service was like, it was all the elders. Because, you know, it would be super early. So they were up, up, you know, the young folks were dragging. But they'd be (laughs) up and they would sing some of these old hymns. Sometimes they'd even pull out a spiritual. And they would have testimony service. So testimonies, you get on the mic and you're talking about just how good God has been. And one of the things I used to hear, one of the refrains that I would hear so often throughout my church experience, but especially in devotional service, was that you got to know God for yourself, that you got to know Jesus for yourself. That when it comes to that, as our people say, that great getting up morning, when you are standing at the pearly gates, no one can answer for you but you. So if you do not have a personal relationship, then you can do all the right things out in the world and engage in all of the justice work, but without the relationship, you're lost. Mm. And because that is true to my faith tradition and because my parents were just as committed to making sure we practiced our faith out in the world as, as much as we did in that personal relationship, forcing myself to truly read the book, the instruction manual, mm. to actually know scripture for myself, to have a prayer life of my own, to not be somebody who just has an unquestioning faith, but rather somebody who wants to dig into all of the history and the etymology and what does the original Hebrew say? What does the Greek say? Like, I want to know where this came from. What was the context of the time? Is the modern translation of this correct? Or are we totally misunderstanding this thing? When we talk Mm. about everything from what's an abomination to what's not, to how husbands and wives should, and all of that stuff, how much of that stuff has been put through hundreds of years of other people's filters. Mm. If I go back to it myself, and engage in the relational conversation of saying, what does this mean and what does this mean for my life? If I go back to the instruction manual and the example of the main character of Jesus Christ, not just the central person in the story, but the character of Christ, the character of Christ is love. The character of Christ is justice. The character of Christ is actually questioning and opposing oppressive state practices. Mm -hmm. That is why the state killed him, right? The character of Christ is redemption. The character of Christ is, is not a false hope or unity, but hope and unity that is grounded in real equity. The character of Christ is justice. So when you get back to the instruction manual and the main character's main character, it is impossible to operate the way that so many, shall we say, Christian conservatives are. Mm -hmm. If you're actually honest with yourself about what is on paper in front of you and the relationship that you are led to have, 
this is not a capitalist. <laughs> it's not a white guy. <laughs> it's not uh, somebody who hated immigrants. It's not somebody who hated LGBTQ folks. It's not somebody who hated women. It's not somebody who hated brown mm-hmm. and black people. It is somebody who actually spent almost all of his time with those folks exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so when I marry that with kind of the 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 scholarly and academic underpinning that I was raised with, you know, you read somebody like James Cone, who is the creator of Black liberation theology, he recognizes that modern times are not at all the first time that faith has been weaponized. Mm-hmm. You can go back to ancient times all the way through today. You can go from the Crusades to, to the Klan, um, to the invention of uh, the anti-choice movement, um, that you can go to the ways in which enslavers withheld certain books of the Bible from the enslaved because they knew it would inspire revolution. Mm. You can go back to all of that and decide to reject the man-made creation of God out of hand because it does not match. It does not jive with Mm. any creation story throughout history. Not the Christian one, not the Judeo-Christian one, not any of them. Mm -hmm. And so when you're raised with somebody with books of James Cone in your, you know, in your in your dad's bookshelf, you come quickly to realize that liberation is not just for heaven, it's for earth too. And so for those folks who seem to be sorely mistaken, the question is always, when is the last time you read the instruction manual? And when is the last time you asked the main character about his character? Because mm-hmm. it can't have been recent. Otherwise, you were talking to yourself and you told us it was God. Mm. Speak on it. <laughs> it, ma- it makes me excited when we talk about truth, because that's what yeah. I think about here. And and for me, a kid who you know grew up with Catholic family and Jewish family, needing to understand, to your point, the root of these ideas. Yeah. These are different faith traditions, but they, they share root ideas. Mm-hmm. And then studying both of those deeply made me then go and study Islam and study Eastern philosophy. And yeah. I really, I wanted to understand what everybody believes. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the, the core of, of character, the, the root of all things being love, that's true whatever book you're that's right. reading. That's right. And the thing I'm always so struck by is the propensity for man who has, you know, we all have like a little bit of that lizard brain that's like rooted in scarcity and scared we're not going to mm-hmm. eat tonight. And like, I, I think about it like a little squirrel, like where's the next acorn coming from kind of thing. <laughs> Because they just seem so desperate and anxious all the time, those little animals. And we step into those pitfall zones where we say, okay, but we could serve this idea and maybe also make this rule, yeah. maybe create a guarantee. And it's it's the, it's those things mm-hmm. that have over and over again, in my estimation anyhow, been used to do harm. Oh, Absolutely. And, and I think that I'm, I'm sure you get this because there's, there's always the angry black woman trope mm-hmm. and there is such a angry woman, you know, they use the word social justice warrior like it's an insult. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you so <laughs> angry all the time? I think about it for us as that kind of sacred rage Mm -hmm. that we've spoken about because rage is the response when truth is assaulted. Yeah. 
Yeah. Rage is the response when someone or something, some place is harmed for yeah. greed. Yeah. And I, I think about it as an actual manifestation of love. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm curious, how do you hold the ferocity of your fire for defense and justice and truth and character Yeah. in, in the midst of what can often come your way because I would imagine that when you become like a leader on black Twitter, you also become a target of anger for some of the people who don't want black women to not only seek, but realize the empowerment that they deserve. Like how do you balance your, your desire to defend the world with what comes back your way as you do so? I mean, it's so interesting. Brittany Cooper, my namesake, Dr. Brittany Cooper, would call it Eloquent Rage, right? That is the, mm. the title of her incredible book. And I think it's interesting because, especially in this current iteration of my life, the level of visibility I have is not something I sought or chose, mm. right? So I didn't desire to be, I don't like the word followers, but seen regularly by as many people as I am now. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to reject what God does, right? So the question is always, what do I do with it? How do I ensure that the platform, the space, the exposure remains committed to something bigger than me, right? This is the constant theme. And so it means being humble enough to recognize when I'm actually not the voice that people need to hear. Mm. And then actually what I need to be doing is spotlighting somebody else's voice or backing out of the situation or conversation completely so that I'm not a distraction, so that I don't cannibalize the space and suck up all the air. And sometimes it is about letting the rage breathe so that people are reminded that that is part of the freedom struggle. Mm. Because this, Life that flattens so many of us into a single meme or platform or quote or book or speech or viral clip, it is intensely flattening for the people who have already been seen and marginalized as one-dimensional, right? Mm. So Black women were already not allowed to express all of the dimensions of ourselves, lest we be a threat through that, lest our confidence be threatening, our rage be threatening, our truth be threatening, our joy be threatening um, to a world order that was never built to protect us. So some of it is about letting the rage have oxygen and like letting that fire burn Mm. to give other people permission (laughs) to let theirs burn. And to decide once and for all that both the thing that I am saying is important and worth being heard and also the way that I will naturally and innately say it matters too. That I don't actually have to contort myself to fit into somebody's box of what acceptable communication of this emotion will be. The other thing, though, is that on on the complete other side of that is the, the very razor thin line between sacred and righteous rage and bitterness. Because mm. the latter is enough to just make you quit entirely, 
right? Which is mm-hmm. like not it. And it's not when you, you know this, when you stand up and you say right things, true things, whether it's in front of two people or two million people, you know that there will be backlash, especially mm-hmm. if you're a woman, especially if you're a black woman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there, that's one side of it. But there's also this bitterness that says, I am, I have something to be enraged about all the time. Mm. That if I read enough books <laughs> and watch enough films <laughs> and listen to enough of my elders, there is something to be rageful about at every second of the day. And, you know, we we often quote James Baldwin when he talks about, you know, to be a Negro in this country is to be in a rage and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage all the time, mm. nearly all the time. But people leave off the second half of that. And he talks about the fact that living as a Negro in this country, as a Black person in this country, is to learn how to not let that consume you. Because then it will convince you that it is the not only the default position, but the only acceptable position. And if that's the only acceptable position, then I am limiting myself from experiencing joy. Mm-hmm. I am limiting myself from experiencing love and from showing love. Um, are there things that trigger that limitation? Absolutely. Most of those things exist exist outside of myself, but I owe it to my ancestors to consistently make the choice Mm. to live in abundance in all of the ways that they could not access or that they had to do in secret and in hiding. So, yeah, I I think that it's it's a test every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a trial every day because there is, like I said, always something to be enraged about. And if you are paying attention at all, there is plenty that should be making you angry. And I think that that staying on the right side of the line between bitterness and sacred rage is making sure that I turn the rage into fuel. When mm-hmm. I let it fester, it becomes bitterness. When I use it to fuel something else, you know, it turns into energy. I love the visual that gives me when you say that, that idea that if you can take what is a sane and emotional and very right reaction to the injustice Mm -hmm. that you witness and let it fuel your action for better rather than just sit in you and Mm -hmm. and essentially, you know, poison you from the inside out. I, I must say that one of my favorite things about watching the way you move through the world. Cause I think about a lot of us who have this little friend network that, you know, bops <laughs> around and, and works on things together. We're very rarely in the same place and we have, yeah. you know, the, the sort of luxury now of technology. Thank God we didn't have it when we were 21 and stupid, but we have it now. <laughs> and, True. and, and, you know, we get to, we get to witness each other and, and something that I love witnessing you know, as, as your friend is your joy. I love that you, as you lead, you also offer these windows in. I'm, I am like the number one Nielsen viewer of Newlywed and Quarantined. (laughs) You and Reggie just like, you send me the two of you with the songs and the laughing. And like, you remind (laughs) me that leaning into the loving relationships in our lives and leaning into the joy is so immensely important, even in the face of whatever's happening in the world, um, because joy and love are acts of resistance. Yeah, and especially so, you know. Again, this is in my witnessing, not in my experience. But I feel like I need to broken record this a little bit for the uh, for my fellow white people who are listening. Like, <laughs> 
black joy is an act of resistance yeah. Yeah. in a world that is treating black people the way it does and has treated That's black right. people for the way it has for so long. And it's not lost on me when I giggle and laugh and I'm like, oh, this is a cute moment watching the two of you online, <laughs> like singing a song or you like making fun of him because he made some weird thing for dinner. I I think about like the root of of your love and the, the obvious depth of it. And, you know, I think about you guys meeting at a protest and I'm like, well, of course we you sure did. did. So, we sure did. We sure did. Can you give can you give the listeners a little bit of the inside baseball there because there I just love the story and I feel like everyone else should know the story if they oh, don't. Oh my gosh, my boo. Uh, you know, so Reggie and I, like you said, met at a protest, and the backdrop is as enraging as so many of the other things we've been talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in twenty fourteen. August of 2014, the Ferguson Police Department killed Michael Brown Jr. Mm-hmm. For the next next six months, there was a police, a St. Louis police department that killed another black person. Six months straight. One of them was Von Derrick Myers. Von Derrick Myers was killed in October of 2014. And he was killed about half hour south of where Michael Brown was. So I grew up in North St. Louis County, uh, which was near Ferguson, Reggie grew up in South City in St. Louis, which was near where Von Derrick Myers was killed. So I was I was um, driving from work to the new location of the protest because, honestly, organizing is, at its best, is very mobile. Mm. So the protests were just essentially moving from place to place. So I didn't know the intersection where we were meeting where um, Von Derrick had been killed. And so I call up a friend of mine who's already over there. I'm like, hey, where am I coming? My friend is not from St. Louis. I just know he's there. Mm. So he goes, hold on one second. Passes the phone to a complete and total stranger. The stranger goes, <laughs> uh, hello? And I'm like, hi, this is Brittany. Da, da, da. I have no idea it's a stranger. So I'm just saying, where am I supposed to go? And he's like, uh, okay, well, we're at the corner of Sean Clem. There should be parking on Shaw or Clem, the cross street where, you know, so he gives me a description. He says, well, you know, I'll hold on the phone while you park, which is really nice. Mm. So he holds on the phone and I'm start waving. I park and I start waving to this complete stranger who's waving back at me. And so he introduces himself. He's like, hi, I'm Reggie. He walks me down to where everybody is. We get back and I realize he does not know my friend. I was like, <laughs> so you're just the kind stranger that didn't take the phone, the brand new iPhone, and walk away with it. You, like, waited for me and blah, blah, blah. We get down there and realize that we have a bunch of people in common. And so a bunch of my friends that I'm down there to meet, he's also come to meet up with them. And what formed was this kind of family of us who were together every single day for mm-hmm. <laughs> months, practically years, our friend Leon was a part of that family. He was in the wedding. Our friend Kayla's a part of that family. She was at the wedding. And so we were we were friends for like two years. And then ultimately, when we were both single at the time, decided to start dating because a good friend of ours got in our business. <laughs> we were sitting on our couch and she she was with her husband and their new baby at the time. And she goes, she looks at us and goes, well, why are you two not dating? And so a couple of months passed by and 
I will tell the true story because he always laughs at me when I don't. I sent up a test balloon and I sent up a flirtatious text message to see like how he would respond. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, mm. <laughs> is, is history. history. <laughs> but we, um, it's, God is funny because the more we started to get to know each other, the more we realized how many people and places we had in common. Mm-hmm. I grew up in church with his godparents the girl he dated all throughout high school was a friend of mine. We have so many, we were we realized we were at certain events at the same time and had mm-hmm. never met until it was time for us to meet mm-hmm. and to build this friendship of, you know, joy and love and black power and beauty. And I'm so grateful and I just I say all the time, I really hope everyone has the opportunity to be loved like this. Like Mm. whether it comes from a parent or a friend or a romantic partner or a community, the kind of love that you get to um, grow in Mm. instead of fall in Mm. and the kind of love that allows allows you to be your full self while also pushing you to be your best self and never judges you no matter which one you are that day, mm-hmm. that is what everybody deserves. And the kind of revolution that Black love is, to your point, is um, not something that's ever lost on us. So we got mm-hmm. married at a place called Studio B in New Orleans, which is our favorite city. And our friend B. Mike is an artist who converted this massive warehouse into this space full of Black art. So we got married between these two I mean, like 20-foot paintings of uh, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King that Mm. say Love Supreme. We got married a block over from where Homer Plessy was arrested for trying to integrate that train car that led to the separate but equal doctrine in this country. So we second-lined past the place of our greatest oppression, you know, full of, like, Black tradition and hope and, and power and joy. And, like, you know, I think of... The fact that our enslaved ancestors had to get married, you know, sometimes in the dead of night, mm. that th- that they would find themselves sold off from one another and the families that they built, that um, the kind of economic oppression that has occurred in this country was in part executed by discouraging Black women from having men in the homes. Um, by the kind of separation that we've seen in our communities because so many of our people have been incarcerated or, um, you know, taken out by the state. There is uh, a resistance present in Black love always in America Mm. because it literally wasn't supposed to exist. Mm. It's the thing that fuels us. The joy of it, like, makes my heart feel full. And I think about, you know, the the backdrop of it, the the it was meant to be energy yeah. of it, right? And and we can recognize that I think in some of our, you know, closest friendships, the the bridges we build as activists, the love when we're lucky to find it, mm-hmm. those moments. And I and I think about this backdrop of of your relationship, literally as the city. You know, being in St. Louis as the uprising, as it was called in Ferguson. And when you talk about the months of protest and when you mention organizing, I I would love for you to tell the listeners who may not know 
the specifics of your background, a little bit about what that means. Being an organizer, you you helped lead those protests for months. You helped inform the world for months about what was really happening. And, and we are in a moment now, you know, six, seven years later, when the world is interrogating itself mm-hmm where we are having frank conversations about state-sanctioned violence and oppression. And and it has been time. It's far yeah. overdue for this. But I'm, I'm curious, because of what's happening now, if you can give people some of the backstory, because a lot of people don't know yeah. what it's taken to get us here. I mean, the backstory begins in community. And I always lead that way because we know that human nature is to attach everything to a certain name or a certain group of names um, and to narrow the scope of who did what. Mm. And I think it is always important to say up front and state out loud that there are thousands of people in this seat with me, mm-hmm. right? And that there are thousands of people who could have been in this seat instead of me and and who still should be. Because so much of that was organic and so much of it was also deeply disciplined and informed. What was organic was, again, this kind of sacred rage that spread very quickly among Groups of people who previously were not necessarily connected, but we found our way to one another. What was also deeply organic was a sense of family. That when you grow up in the Midwest, especially when most of your people migrated from the South, there is a commitment that we make to one another. There is a sense of hospitality in everything that we do. We, I think a place like St. Louis and especially the activism and organizing community within St. Louis is a place that really exemplifies that Gwendolyn Bond um, poem when she talks about us being each other's magnitude and bond, Mm. that we are for each other because we are each other. And there was an instant understanding of connectivity, um, even when we didn't get it all right, even when we made mistakes, even when we made mistakes that hurt one another. For me, I always experienced a return to what we owe one another. And I and and there to do that across hundreds, if not thousands of people for months is no small task, which brings me to the discipline of it all. The good news is that in a place like St. Louis, you had people who have been, you have people who have been doing organizing work for decades. Mm-hmm. People like Jamala Rogers, people like Percy Green, who is very famous for scaling the St. Louis Arch when it was being built and chaining himself up there to protest the lack of Black construction workers and suppliers and contractors that were being hired for that, I mean, the most massive job on that side of the Mississippi at that time. So, um, you know, you got this kind of very storied legacy of freedom fighters and people who were still around to help show us some of the blueprint. Mm. And then you also had, you know, kind of the leaders of the new school, Tef Poe, Kayla, Derricka Purnell, whose book on prison abolition is coming out soon. People who 
had been doing lots of work in lots of different spaces. And then we all found ourselves at one ground zero. Mm. And so folks got in where they fit in, right? Kayla is one of the most creative organizers I've ever met. And when she took a chance that we used on the ground, we used to say to the police, they think it's a game, they think it's a joke. And she sent everybody out to literally come back with games, jump rope, sidewalk chalk, uh, you know, um, jacks, like all of it. And there was a street shutdown. But when you looked at the street being shut down, everybody was playing games. So there are these images of these like black teenagers teaching this white grandmother double dutch. And they're all engaging in this beautiful act of creative resistance. The police were completely dumbfounded, especially because they thought the protest was going to be somewhere else, which is a whole nother story. But like, that's the kind of brilliance that comes from people like Kayla and the folks in St. Louis. Mm. When I think about Kat Daniels, who is a, a chef and an organizer in her own right, she runs the organization Pop Bangers in St. Louis, which supports housing insecure folks and gives them skill and resources Mama Cat was our our chef, our family chef. So like the holiday meals and the the food that everybody ate when it was two a.m. and we people were still outside of the police department. Like that that was Mama Cat getting in where she fit in, and she was not just giving people sustenance, but she was giving people love that sustained all of us, mm-hmm. right? And so those early days were a lot of that. And it was, when I say those early days, I'm literally talking about over 400 consecutive days of disciplined direct action, which makes the Ferguson uprising the longest direct social action campaign in this country's history. It's longer Mm -hmm. than the Montgomery bus boycott. But because it was being reported, like we were nothing but shiftless thugs who were looting whatever and rioting this and da 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 people took that story as truth. Mm -hmm instead of remembering that we should question everything. And so there were times that I was leading from the front and I helped make sure that activists and organizer voice was in places like the Ferguson Commission. Um, there there were times that I was leading from the back because I was the one bailing people out of jail um, or you know running the meetings or writing what we were calling these Ferguson open letters from, from protesters that we would publish worldwide. I was kind of the ghostwriter on these. So I'd get thoughts from people and put them all together and we would put these, these letters out to make sure that the story was being told from the ground with accuracy and with care. And so I, I stand as one of, like I said, thousands of people who made the world pay attention to Michael Brown Jr., to Ferguson, Mm -hmm. to fly over country where plenty of Black folks live and get forgotten about, Mm -hmm. but also to the expectation of democracy Mm -hmm. that if we give you authority in governance and public service, then what you owe us in return is justice. Mm-hmm. And if there's no justice, there will be no peace. Mm-hmm. So we would not have been where we are right now. We would not have been where we were last summer with the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests. We would not be more expansively talking about how police violence impacts Black women and disabled people and LGBTQ people and Muslims we would not be in a place where you can hear voices like mine regularly on a podcast or on a news channel instead of us tuning in to watching everybody report the story wrong. Mm -hmm. 
we would not be at the point where people are buying books about abolition written by the folks who are helping, you know, lead the new school on it, who were on the ground in Ferguson, like Derricka. Mm-hmm. We would not be at that point had courageous, brave young people done what my friend Stephen Bradley says in saving American democracy once again mm-hmm. and reminding this country of her responsibility to all of us. Because mm-hmm. let's be clear, there was a lull. There was a time when lots of us were fighting, but we were we were doing work in silos. We were not deeply connected. Mm-hmm. And where some of us had gotten a little comfortable because we were like, there's a black guy in the White House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Dem- you know, we, we got some we got some good things passed when the Democrats were still in, in control of Congress. And so all is well in the world. No, all is not well in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that Ferguson not only woke a lot of people up, who are deeper in the fight now than they would have been without without it. There is also a language and an imagination that we are willing to access now because that work has been put in for the last several decades, but especially Mm -hmm. the last several years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think connecting those histories, looking, as you mentioned, at the generations of work that got us here And then looking at the work happening within our own generation that has shifted this present time forward, it it did get easy to think, oh, that bill was passed. Oh, we got this person elected. Oh, look at the progress. We can relax. But what, what the last decade has taught me is that progress can only happen and at the very minimum be maintained when we are vigilant about continuing to hold the line. Yeah, that's right. And that, that just feels like a, a level up, a new operating procedure for us as a collective, as you mentioned, to understand and then to move forward from. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned coverage. And I remember just, you want to talk about, it wasn't even sacred rage. This was like bitter rage. This was not cute. <laughs> getting home from, oof, getting home from days of protest here in L.A., um, this summer when, you know, not only in America, but around the world, people took to the streets because of yeah. George Floyd, because of Breonna Taylor. And it was such a beautiful moment to witness. And I came home from a beautiful day of protesting. And I watched the news that made the protest I was at look like <laughs> a war zone. And I was like, what is this? And there were like the same three shots and they just kept showing the same three shots and they didn't talk about the fact that 25,000 people were in the street like chanting Mm -hmm. and singing. There was just like a car that got set on fire on a corner and that's all that was on TV all night. Yeah. And I'm flipping through the channels and you know, here's here's me being a human sort of having a version of an expectation because I know what Fox is going to show, but I'm watching CNN do the same thing and I'm like, CNN! <laughs> I'm like screaming at the TV. I'm like, where's Anderson Cooper? He's not on. You know, but I just was like, what is, how could you? You know, I yeah. was so upset. And I think about the many arenas in which you are an expert as an organizer on the ground in movements in real time. You mentioned, you know, being a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Politics and journalism and the coverage of movements, those things are all so intertwined. Mm -hmm. How do you think as a consultant, as someone who has advised students and who has worked on institutional strategy and social change and policy with a, with a president 
when we talk about our forever 44, you know. Yeah, because it would just definitely not 45. Definitely not. <laughs> no, 45 wouldn't have let either of us anywhere near the mm-hmm. building. And I'm but fine with it. It's great. I didn't want to go anyway. I was full <laughs> Megan Rapino in those years. I was like, I'm not going to the fucking White House. No, absolutely not. Um, but I'm really curious, how do you think we as a group of constituents mm-hmm. could or might change the way coverage exists because the coverage made Ferguson look like a riot and it wasn't. Yeah. The coverage made the Fairfax protest look like a war zone and it wasn't. Yeah. I'm like, I have photos and videos to prove it in my own phone. Yeah. As you do in your own phone of Ferguson. So what, what do you see as an opportunity for us to call for or demand more honest coverage yeah in terms of these social structures that need examining how do we examine them if our if our protesting if our asking for better is constantly demonized i think that some of it is to do exactly what we're doing right now right to seize the opportunity of an increasingly democratized airwave not completely but increasingly mm. With social media, with new media like podcasts, with platforms that allow us to operate unfiltered. Because mm. here's the thing. People who mean us harm are definitely using those spaces. Mm-hmm. Right? Like people are definitely getting radicalized on YouTube. Yeah. People, I have, I have an activist friend right now who's getting attacked because of a video somebody made of her on YouTube. Right? And we're trying to... Get that handled. You know, people are definitely being radicalized and and or suppressed over social media, right? Mm-hmm. And we watched all of that happen in both 2016 and again in 2020. Mm. So we have to recognize the power of the tool and be determined to be the ones who use it for good and not for evil, mm. which means having a higher standard than the platform will make, will force us to have. Right. We have to have a higher standard than any podcast platform would require, because if Ben Shapiro can have a show, the bar's not that high. Right. <laughs> we <laughs> we have to have a higher standard for what we tweet, for what we post, for what we share, for what we disseminate and hold ourselves to that to that standard, hold one another lovingly to that standard. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, I think is to be increasingly creative about how we build our own tables. So Mm. I am glad that I get to get on MSNBC and help people make sense of what is happening in the world because I know in 2014, seven years ago, I did not, not only did I barely see anybody who looked like me on those airwaves, I certainly was not seeing most people with my lived experience, right? Mm. Not Mostly not people who had ever committed any time to being in the streets with people. Not people who, you know, for months and years, this was all we did. And so even recognizing that some of my own work has changed, right? So Yes, I have been on the ground and done all of these things. And sometimes I'm in the background doing that stuff. But more often than not, I'm actually the amplifier of those folks. Mm -hmm. I am the people making, I'm the person making sure that those people's stories are getting told. And how important is it to make sure that people with that lived experience and that perspective are not just on the streets, 
but they're hosting shows and they're building mm-hmm. production companies and they are advising writers rooms and they are throwing elbows in all of these places where people want to put on the same five activists for any issue every single time and saying, actually, don't put me on air, put this person on air, right? Mm -hmm. I want folks like that in the streets and behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. literally everywhere there is to be. And the more we can build those tables for ourselves, the better. So I look Mm -hmm. at what you're doing. I look at what Issa Rae is doing. I mean, I look at what Robin Feedy is doing. Just there's a There's so much power in deciding to say the stories have to be told. And not only will we be the ones to tell them, but we will make sure that we run the whole thing so that we can always check that the story is right. No matter who's telling you, we can always make sure that people are getting paid the way that they should be getting paid fairly and equitably. um, And that the kind of ownership that we should all experience over our stories is real and that we haven't just given them away to this publisher or to that company or to that platform. Because there's not going to be a time when our messages are ever fully comfortable for everyone. Mm -hmm. That is the nature of choosing to go against the grain. So we should disavow ourselves of the notion that we are ever going to be fully accepted in all those spaces. And Mm -hmm. when you get over that, Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to say, oh, no, I'm just going to go build my own. I'm going to stop trying to claw at this thing that does not want me. I'm going to go build my own space Mm -hmm. and make the other folks who felt unwanted feel wanted. I think the idea of building new spaces makes me feel so excited. And the idea of democratizing the spaces that, to your point, we often find ourselves in feels so important. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the fact that you now are a regular commentator on MSNBC. Love to see it. Every day (laughs) that I'm like, I'm like, there she is. And... I'm always so thrilled to hear what you have to say and at the frequency with which you suggest other people's knowledge and resources. I mean, even on this podcast, I'm already seeing the Instagram story for the episode with all the swipe ups to all the books and all the articles you've mentioned, <laughs> and I'm stoked about it. And and I wonder, you know, when you think about your own through line, starting as a teacher, you know, being yeah. part of TFA, coming to leading at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, teaching students there, giving a TED Talk, (laughs) you have taken up space and given people, simply by existing, the inspiration to do the same. You have reminded other women that they can do the same. And, you know, I I got to come visit you when you were at Harvard. I know. That was still Uh. one of the most attended... Institute of Politics study groups of all time. Oh, I was People so were geeked. standing on the walls. <laughs> Do you remember? It was so great. It was such it a great was... day. It was you and Simone Sanders. Yes. And my mom was there and my godmother. It was just a great day. It was it a great was day. It was so, so great. <laughs> and honestly, I had this weird sort of, not weird, I had this really emotional kind of um, dual experience that day because I was so honored that you'd asked me to come and, you know, speak with you to your class. And I was like sitting there feeling like a cheerleader, being like, look at my friend running this class at Harvard. (laughs) It was like so, it was so amazing. You know, when you talk about like everything makes you cry, I'm like misty eyed about it. (laughs) How, how have you made your way into those spaces? What intention did you carry into Harvard with you? You know, you you are a person who I know thinks about your impact and your legacy. And I 
I wonder what was happening in your mind as you took up your fellowship at Harvard. What was happening in your mind as you walked onto the TED stage? You know, how, (laughs) how has that, I don't even know what my question is. I'm honestly just so, I'm like, I'm awestruck about it. And I just want to know what was going on in your head. I mean, it's kind of wild. What was going through my head when I first stepped uh, on campus at Harvard was, I got rejected from Harvard when I applied. (laughs) (laughs) In 2002, when I graduated from high school, Harvard was one of the few schools I did not get into. And, you know, I'm standing there in my 30s thinking, well, God does all things well, right? Because the the plan was not for me to go here. The plan was for me to, to help teach here, which is just... I mean, God stay blowing my mind, and I love it. Um, <laughs> keep blowing my mind, God. Feel free anytime. <laughs> but I also, you know, I go through those moments of severe self-doubt <laughs> and worry about if I will be enough. You talk about walking onto the TED stage. My rehearsal the day before was terrible. I could not remember anything I was supposed to say. And I I don't know if we've talked about this. I grew up doing theater. So the idea of memorizing lines was not actually intimidating to me, but I hadn't done it in so long. Mm-hmm. And they have these rehearsal spaces at TED where they have the red dot in the room because they know that that actual carpet can freak people out. So mm-hmm. like if you rehearse it and get comfortable with the space, it'll be easier when you go out on stage. So you do a dress rehearsal out on the stage and like three-fourths of the way into my speech, I completely blanked. So then I go into one of these rehearsal rooms with the big red dot on the floor with my speaker coach, and I'm still just bombing it left and right. Like, I was like, this is ridiculous. But I just, I had to recenter myself on purpose, mm-hmm. right? I like to think, I like to remind myself all the time that we all have had a purpose before anyone had an opinion. Mm-hmm. And that if I am here... It is for a reason. And if I firmly believe, as I do, that that reason is bigger than me, then it's not about being intimidated because I'm too small for the moment. It's actually about about being excited to be useful in this moment. Mm. And I'm excited to be a vessel to communicate a message that maybe somebody can only get from me on this day at this time when they choose to press play on this TED Talk, right? Mm. That maybe this is something that you can only get from this class on this day with this guest, Sophia Bush, and that that's the way that you're going to get it. So let me facilitate that space and be Mm -hmm. a vessel. Um, And when I really center myself, and I mean, literally, like silence everything else. Like I did, I barely left my room the next day because I was just like, I don't want too many outside inputs. I don't want to walk around beautiful Vancouver. I don't want to see all my friends who are also here at the tech conference. I'll see them after the speech. But right now, Mm -hmm. I just want to stay focused on what I'm here to do and how I am here to be helpful. And then the last thing I think is, I think of I think of our ancestors often. I can't talk about what I learned yet, but you know, I did an episode of Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr., which I'm already fangirling because it's Skip. And then, you know, we're like kikiing about all of these things we have in common. And then he like gives me all these revelations about my family that I could never have found out any other way. Oh. So I can't tell you exactly what I found out yet because the episode doesn't air for a while, but... I will tell you that I am more abundantly clear than ever about what I owe, Mm. about how much was sacrificed so that there could be blood running through my veins so that I could get the choice to be a vessel for something, Mm. how many generations of faithfulness existed so that I can sit here and have a revelatory conversation with you about 
the character of God, right? Mm -hmm. And how that translates into justice movements. When you first go to Harvard as a fellow, you spend a ton of time meeting with every dignitary at the university and touring the university. And the place that I really wanted to go was this old yellow house right on the edge of main campus. It is where university presidents used to live. It is now, um, I can't remember whose office is in there, but now one of the kind of top leaders at the university, their office is there. And I had been doing my research before I said yes to Harvard because I wanted to make sure that they had at least started reckoning with their own entanglements with enslavement, right? And their their the benefits that they had received from um, that system before I said yes. And so one of the things I discovered in that was they had been reckoning with that. And one of the things they had realized was that at this house where the university presidents used to live and also where George Washington lived for part of the time when he was actually planning the war, they two of those university presidents had enslaved people there that worked for them. And so there's a plaque mm-hmm. on the outside of that building that has all four of their names on it. And I'm the only black fellow my year. I'm a, actually, I was the only fellow of color my year. So I'm walking into this, into this space. And I, Sophia, when I tell you, I was completely overcome. Mm. I barely said anything in this meeting. And I'm a talker, as you already know. I barely said anything in this meeting because I could literally not just feel their presence. I felt like I could actually see them passing through the rooms. Mm. And I was too overcome to, I know it sounds wild, but I was legitimately too overcome to say much of anything that had anything to do remotely with a fellowship or, you know, Harvard or whatever. I was just sitting there completely overcome. And for the rest of the day, every time I saw a Black student on campus, every time I saw a Black person working there, every time I saw a Black person leading a classroom, every time I sat down at my own desk and thought about what I wanted to craft my semester's worth of study groups around, I was overcome with the thought of what I owe. Mm. And you really don't get to shrink and be small in their presence. You really do not get to minimize yourself when they stood tall under the most inhumane circumstances so that bloodlines would survive, Mm -hmm. let alone thrive. Like, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I try to walk around with with the thought of what I owe and what I am privileged to be a vessel to do every mm-hmm. day. Do you think that that sense of purpose gives you a well for confidence? Because that is what your TED Talk is about. And it strikes mm-hmm. me that when you talk about getting on the TED stage, you know, all laughter aside that the rehearsal on a talk on confidence was a mess because that's perfect. It was perfect. a mess, Sophia. That's perfect. <laughs> but, but truly, you know, like I'm, I have chills listening to you tell that story about being in that yellow house on the Harvard campus. And I think about the deep like pulse. There's a vibration to the kind of purpose you're talking about. Yeah. And, and do you find that that clarity of purpose informs your confidence? Yeah. Um, Yes is the answer, but I still have to go back and find it. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like it is, there's an active pursuit to do the kind of self-talk that centers me in purpose, that reminds me that God's not going to play me, that reminds me, okay, I did this hard thing before I can do this, I can do another hard thing. Mm-hmm. I actually have to go back and have that conversation with myself again. I want to get to the point where it is innate, where it is habitual, where it flows through me so easily I don't have to go through the steps. But mm-hmm. I'm still in a place where I have to go through the steps. Mm-hmm. And my my journey of confidence is not unlike a lot of marginalized people's journeys of confidence, especially because I was being educated in predominantly white institutions. Mm-hmm. My parents, my mom in particular, had to make a, you know, the really... I don't even want to say unfair choice because it's not really a choice, but she had to decide to send myself and my brother to schools that would educate us extremely well, but that she knew would have the propensity to teach us to to hate ourselves. And that this, this false choice between sending a Black child to a school where they may learn but not be loved or sending them to a school where they'll be loved but they might not learn, that is the position that we put Black parents, marginalized parents in every single day in this country. So between the scholarship money and, you know, her her salary from the good job she had, the good jobs she had, we we went to private school, which meant that this comparison that all adolescent young people do, because you just want to fit in. That's all you want to do when you're 13 mm-hmm. is just fit in. Well, I'm looking around. And my hormones are telling me to fit in. My brain is telling me to fit in. The media is telling me to fit in. Everything I'm consuming is telling me to fit in. And I don't. My hair Mm. is kinky. (laughs) My hair is braided most of the time. You, you know, the white boys don't want to take me home to meet their families. The black guys think I act white. Like, make this make sense, right? Mm. Um, And so it, it did a number on me for a very long time. Um, as, to be very clear, cultures and systems of white supremacy are designed to do. Mm-hmm. They're designed to make us doubt our innate abilities and to think that we are less than we are, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it was doing exactly what it was designed to do. And I, um, through a lot of therapy and a lot of prayer and a, and a lot of that kind of self-talk to remind myself of what the point is, what the mm-hmm. purpose is, that's what helps get me back to a place of confidence. And then there are plenty of times, I'm going to be honest, where I fake it till I make it. And that's mm-hmm. fine, too. We get there. Mm-hmm. We get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's something so important because, and you and I talk about this a lot, and we we just talked about this on uh, an episode of your podcast, Undistracted, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you. And I I loved coming and joining you on it. And we had a conversation about privilege and about society and about why a lot of white people have a hard time interrogating white privilege. Yeah. And what I'm struck by in this moment is we've never actually talked about what exists in our friendship. And I, and I think in a lot of the friendships in our community and then our, mm-hmm. our sort of overlapping communities, which is we can sit and talk about society and talk about feeling not enough and talk mm-hmm. about what it means to even as successful women with public facing platforms yeah. who, you know, outsiders might look at you or me and say, well, she's got it figured out. She feels like she's enough. And you and I are vulnerable enough people to say like, oh no, I constantly think I'm not <laughs> enough. And, yeah. and for me, I'm like, I'm either not enough or I'm way too much. And what is it? And either way I'm wrong. <laughs> this is like the daily thing that I'm working on. You know, rewriting my my permission slips, recalibrating <laughs> my relationship to confidence. 
So we can, as friends, meet there Mm -hmm. in that, God, I'm tired and I'm scared. I'm not enough space. Yeah. And I cherish that you, in communion with me, speak to me about your experience as a black woman. Mm -hmm. Because your experience, your intersectional experience is different, obviously, than mine. Yeah. I can, by, by that proximal experience of knowing how society, how bad society makes me feel. Yeah. I'm like, well, I don't have to combat. I combat sexism and gender-based judgment mm-hmm. and pay gaps and all these things, but I don't combat those things at the same time that I combat racism. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm spelling all of this out for folks at home listening really because in this moment I'm going, ah, how do you want to encourage people listening who may not have a friendship like ours or a friendship like mine with, with my best friend Nia or conversations like this in their life. How do you want to encourage people to hold on to whatever their experience might be, but also make a little more room for the experiences of their neighbors, offer a little more space for the reality of, of their neighboring communities. Mm Mm-hmm. I want people to first consider that making a little or a lot of room for people whose intersectional experiences not only differ from yours, but uh, present challenges that you have not faced. Mm. I want everyone to consider that making room for those will actually lead us to better, more sufficient solutions. Mm. So if your goal is genuinely justice, liberation, freedom, equity, if it is genuinely that, then you should be excited about opening up that space. Because what it means is that your solution will be better informed instead of having to return to the drawing board over and over again because this one only included the white women. Oh, this one only included the able-bodied women. Oh, wait, this one only included the English-speaking women. Hold Mm -hmm. up, this one only included the white-collar women. I want to be I want to be done with this. I don't want to be fighting the same stuff in in 10, 20, 40, 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. I want us to be having new conversations. Yeah. In order to do that, I have to be willing to consider that the experiences of a black trans woman will t- not only inform my humanity to be more expansive, but inform my solution building to be more expansive. Mm. So that'll make my podcast more expansive and therefore more educational and therefore more helpful and might lead somebody to go build a solution that they wouldn't have otherwise Mm. that will actually consider the experiences of people who are not just me. And then hopefully we can actually make progress instead of just make noise. So I actually, I think that so, you know, yes, go read Kimberly Crenshaw who created the concept of intersectionality Yes, have, you know, conversations with the people that you need to have them with. Yes, make sure that you are doing your own learning and that you are not putting that on the backs of your marginalized friends. And also begin at the place where you have a conversation with yourself about what your mindsets are. Because if you can shift your paradigm from a place of annoyance with the expansiveness that intersectionality requires to a place of excitement, then you'll approach everything thereafter differently. Mm-hmm. I know for me, being able to do the learning 
that I've done and that I will do for the rest of my life in spaces that, you know, you and I frequent together a lot, I feel like a deeper and bigger person seeing the connections and understanding the overlaps and just learning, learning Mm -hmm. and learning and learning. It's like the encyclopedia that is you in your relation to the world gets to grow continually. And I think that it's a beautiful way to consider the more you know about the more people in the world around you, to your point, the more intelligent your solutions can be because the, you know, the drumbeat for so long, which is the the truth to all of this, is that none of us are free until all of us are free. That's right. Everyone's liberation is bound together. A rising tide lifts all ships. Mm -hmm. So even if you have the most privilege, if everyone who doesn't gets more free, Mm -hmm. you will get more freedom. That's right. And that, that's something I hope, you know, inspires people to study. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, these are, these are lofty topics and and lofty goals, you know, changing society so that in Mm -hmm. 40 years we can be having conversations that are like mostly sassy and not as much about purpose. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. feels exciting, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, that's a macro goal, right? Yeah. What, what for you in your life, you know, as a woman and an, an author and a leader and an educator and a spouse and the and, 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 like, what is your big <laughs> personal goal right now? My big personal goal in this moment is to speak and teach truth that moves people to action. And I think that the, the mountain is so big, the more people we can have scaling it with agility and heft and creativity and thoughtfulness and care, the better. Like, I want this to be the biggest choir for justice ever and for it to resound so loudly that it shakes entire systems down. Mm -hmm. And some people will go and start an organization to make that happen. Some people will lead protests to make that happen. Some folks will write books to make that happen. Some people will create art to make that happen. I want to make sure that if you ever hear me speaking or if you ever hear somebody speaking on a stage I helped build, that they are people and that I am a person who activates you and organizes you to do the things that you uniquely have to be called to do. Mm. Um, Tupac said, I don't know if I'll change the world, but I know I'll spark the mind who will. I'm not Tupac by any stretch of the imagination, but I do hope that I, that I spark minds that will change the world. Mm, I love that. Okay, I'm going to ask you my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the show. Okay. And it can be, you know, whether it's personal or professional or political, the answer might be, by the way, I'm going to do a shameless plug here because I'm really excited about it. The answer might be about your new book, We Are Like Those Who Dream, (laughs) which is coming soon this year. This is my encouragement audience to pre-order the book. Um, but whether it is any of those things or something completely different, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? That book? (laughs) (laughs) It is like, you know what I realized today was, and I actually, I actually wrote this. It's like 95% done. It's like Mm. edits, but it's been in that stage for a little minute now. Not because (sighs) my editor has not been encouraging and supportive. She has been. Nicole Counts is incredible. But because 
I have had so much fear around it. Mm-hmm. And I realized today that it had to do with the fact that in the I felt like a completely different person when I sold this book. I finished that book, uh, that book proposal, met with all the publishers, inked a deal in 2018, when I was at Harvard, actually, that was a very wild mm-hmm. semester of my life. I was at Harvard. I got a book deal. I got engaged. You came to Harvard. There was so much that happened that year. It was a big six months. I was a different person in 2018. Mm-hmm. My politics were different. My life was different. The love that I was had experienced and knew how to give was as magical as it was. It was even less magical than it is now. I have known a different level of loss. I have known a different level of triumph. Mm -hmm. I have known a different level of worry. And we all have been through a pandemic since then. So I was so scared that I was going to put something out in the world that created a fixed image of me that was no longer true. Mm. And it's interesting because the book is actually a collection of essays for me, but it's also these speeches from Black women over time. So from like Maria W. Stewart at the end of the at the end of the 1800s all the way to to much more modern ones. And I'm like, well, they could have had the same fear, right? Walking up to that podium, walking up to that microphone and saying that when history records this one talk, that they are going that I am forever going to be affixed in this one place in history, irrespective of the context, irrespective of how I've evolved over my life, irrespective of what happens to me, what I do after this, that everything will be about what I did up to now and what I did now. And so here I am memorializing their words in a new way because I think that they are instructive for future generations, because I want this to be a Bible of Black women's wisdom that people Mm -hmm. revisit again and again and again, because Black women always know what to do in the tough times, even when we don't. (laughs) And so there's a, I realized like they could have had the exact same fear when they wrote and said the words that I just put in the book that I'm writing right now. Mm. And they did it anyway, because these are the blueprints that history needs. Mm. Right. And we have to give it out to the world, hoping, praying, believing, trusting that people are capable to put the contours and the context around it and to know that I'm going to live regardless of whether or not I agree with everything that I put on page 17 at one point in time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my work Mm -hmm. in progress, but -hmm. it's close to being done. (laughs) I love that. And what strikes me when you're talking about what that might mean, you know, this thing being memorialized in this moment, I'm like, this is only, my brain immediately goes into like cheerleading mode. And I'm like, this is only your first book, <laughs> ma'am. I know, but I'm like, just come like, on. I know, but they're so hard to write. I'm like, I don't know <sighs> if I can write a second. We'll see how the first one goes. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine, but I also can't wait to read it. And thank you. I'm I'm so excited for it to be out there in the world and for more and more people to spend time wrapped up in your brilliance because every every time you know we hang whether it's for something or you know in a hallway giggling yeah. when we're not supposed to be <laughs> in our matching white suits in our matching our white matching suits matching that is a story <laughs> that is on Britney's podcast on Undistracted it on is. my episode so if you want to know what I'm talking about 
you can go find <laughs> it. But you know, no matter what, I I I leave feeling wiser and and full and grateful, and I just. I'm excited. You know, I, I, I can't imagine how scary it is to put the pages out because they really are kind of set in stone, but I'm excited for them to be out there in the world so other people can hold them too. Thank you. Thank you. And you know, I have nothing but love for you. Every time we get together, it is a joy for me. And joy is um, joy is in short supply these days. So mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> 